Good morning, everyone. Happy New Year. As we begin, I'd invite you to, uh, to stand as we sing our first song. <clears throat> Let's sing together. <clears throat> For thou, O Lord, art high above all the earth. Thou art exalted far above all gods. For thou, O Lord, art high above all the earth. Thou art exalted far above all gods. I exalt thee, I exalt thee, I exalt thee, O Lord, I exalt thee, I exalt thee. I exalt Thee, O Lord. For Thou, O Lord, art high above all the earth. Thou art exalted far above all gods. For thou, O Lord, art high above all the earth. Thou art exalted far above all gods. We exalt thee. We exalt thee. We exalt thee. We exalt Thee, O Lord. We exalt Thee, we exalt Thee, we exalt Thee, O Amen. You can be seated. Well, Happy New Year. Good morning and welcome. Hope that uh, those that are still visiting from the holidays feel welcome to be here. And um, those online, uh, thankful for your presence online as well. Many of you know that I enjoy running, and I love running in the snow. Makes my wife feel very weird that I'm out there running in my shorts in the snow, but I enjoy doing that. And one of the things I really enjoy is, is uh, and I did this last week, I got out on the run and, and just stopped in the middle of the run and just looked at the beauty of God's creation and just marveled at that. But at the same time, I remembered Isaiah 118, that my sins will be just as white as snow. And so in that moment, I just, I, I praised God. I was very thankful that I knew that I had that hope that my sins could be just as white as snow. 
Not gray, not sort of white, but white. And I'm hoping this morning as we gather together, as we assemble, that we're reminded about what Christ gives us, that hope that our sins could be just as white as snow, but to be gone, no longer a burden to us. So I'm hoping that as we gather, we can encourage each other with that hope, that promise, and as we sing our songs of praise, that we're reminded of what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we gather this morning so thankful that Christ has come, that he's given us hope, and not a maybe, but that assurance that our sins can be as white as snow. Father, thank you for uh, a chance to be together this morning. Thank you that we can be a source of encouragement one to another. Help us, Father, to draw near to you and to each other as we seek to live out our lives as disciples of Jesus. It's in him we pray. Amen. Let's sing. We shall assemble on the mountain. We shall assemble at the throne. With humble hearts into his presence. We bring an offering of song. Glory and honor and dominion. Unto the Lamb, unto the King. Oh, hallelujah, hallelujah. We sing the song of the redeemed. And at the end of our journey, we shall bow down on bended knee. And with the angels up in heaven, we sing a song of victory, glory and honor and dominion unto the Lamb, unto the King. Oh, alleluia, alleluia. We sing the song of the redeemed. During this uh, next song, our kids, ages 2 through the 4th grade, uh, are dismissed to children's worship. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but only lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. 
On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ the solid rock I stand, All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. I'm going to read a little scripture this morning. (laughs) In this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these. The righteous person perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness. Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be over-wicked and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. Whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. Wisdom makes one wise person more powerful than ten rulers in a city. Indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. Do not pay attention to every word people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you, for you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I tested by wisdom, and I said, I am determined to be wise. But this was beyond me. Whatever exists is far off and most profound. Who can discover it? God bless the reading of his word. This morning, we are beginning a a two-part series, not a a long one here, but uh, uh, we're getting ready to have some guest speakers in the coming weeks, and uh, uh, there were two phrases that have been floating around in my mind that uh, I don't know that I've, I've heard many sermons preached on them, but I think that they're consistent with the biblical picture of who God's people are supposed to be. And the phrase that I want us to think about this morning, one that maybe we should be welcome in embracing, is the phrase, uh, I was wrong. Uh, I don't know if that's going to show up up there. Did my batteries die? Hey, there we go. I was wrong. I don't know about you, but uh, when I was a child, I was kind of a know-it-all. And some of you might be thinking, Chris, you're still a bit of a know-it-all. You wouldn't be wrong. Um, (laughs) 
I remember as a kid, you know, my mom would teach me something, and then that became the thing that I would use as, like, the guiding principle for my life for a period of time. And there's a story that she likes to tell that I also enjoy telling about a time that uh, we were in the grocery store, and I was looking at the magazines, the, like, uh, Examiner and the National Lampoon, you know, all these tabloids and stuff that sit at the end of the checkout line. And one of them had, like, President Bill Clinton and some guy dressed in like a rubber alien suit standing next to each other and like having a conversation with one another and it said the president of the united states meets with aliens and i was terrified by this i'm oh no there are aliens and the president's meeting with them this is this but then i also thought well, maybe that's not such a bad thing if the president meets with aliens but then i had also been raised in a household where we knew that bill clinton was like the worst human being that had ever lived and uh I thought, well, maybe this is not the right person to have meeting with the aliens. This is a bad situation. This is going to go poorly for us. And so, like, at, you know, eight, nine years old, uh, I was having, like, an existential crisis about what was going on in the White House, which is maybe a little too early and maybe foreboding for the rest of my life. I don't know. Uh, I've never really felt good about what was going on in the White House since that point. (laughs) So we get in the car, and my mom doesn't know that I've been reading these covers. And we, uh, we're sitting there, and we're you know, driving along, and I said, Mom, I really hope the aliens know that we're better than Bill Clinton. And my mom, my mom she's, what in the world are you talking about? I said, well, the, the magazine in the store, it said that Bill Clinton was meeting with the aliens. And all of a sudden, it dawns on my mom that I've been reading what I've been seeing, right? And she tells me, Christopher, you can't believe those things. They're just a pack of lies. I'm like, oh. And so she explains to me the whole situation with these tabloids that take, you know, ridiculous stories and they tell them. And, you know, you could read them for entertainment purposes, but there are people out there that actually believe them, that anything that's printed on the cover of a tabloid is as good as gospel, Right? And she explains, this is why you don't read the tabloids. They're just a pack of lies. So we, uh, we're in the grocery store a couple of weeks later. And what my mom ended up uh, doing was, you know, she, she unloads the cart onto the conveyor belt. And uh, as we're standing there watching the food go down the aisle, the person behind me has grabbed the National Enquirer off of the rack and is flipping through it, thumbing through it. And in my moment of desire to save this person, I turn around and I say, don't read it, it's a pack of lies. (laughs) And to this day, my mom tells the story, and she tells it better than I do, but uh, it's it's a defining moment in my life, really. Uh, It's why I became a preacher, because I want to help people avoid reading a pack of lies and, and be able to discern truth from fiction. It set me on an early path towards my eventual career. What I want to tell you this morning, though, is that uh, I think sometimes, with a small amount of knowledge, we can can be a little dangerous. We we may arrive at a conclusion, and presented with other evidence, presented with other uh, other things to help us solidify our understanding, we, we cling fast to the first piece of information that we've received, and we never move on from that. I've arrived at my best and fullest understanding. Nothing else will help me grow beyond this. The problem is, it's not not how God's people approach life. We can arrive at truth and grow in our knowledge of the truth. 
In fact, the first things that we learn are often true, but, but not broad enough to help us understand life as a whole. In fact, I want you to think, if you, uh, if you had learned math in kindergarten or first or second grade and stopped there because you knew math, there would be a world of math that you still hadn't learned to conquer and, and uncover. And truth be told, I really haven't moved beyond second or third grade math. I don't have to use it on a regular basis. And so uh, for me, that was enough. But there are some of you in here that do people's taxes. And if Nancy or Greg didn't move beyond second or third grade math, there would be a lot of people in big trouble. Fortunately, they're a lot better at math than I am. But there are times where in our ignorance our lack of wisdom, our lack of understanding, and our clinging to a kernel of truth, we find ourselves wrong. And I want to share with you this morning from, from, again, the book of Ecclesiastes, where we just read a few thoughts, and then some additional scriptures that I think help us to understand that the theme of being able to say, I was wrong, is a biblical theme. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 16 says, Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? You know, if if you were to uh, have one of those fun little Bible verse pictures up on the wall, uh, things like, I can do all things through Christ Jesus who gives me strength, or for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, uh, and you have like a lighthouse or a beautiful tree or something. If you did that with this verse and you hung it up on your wall and you had like a golden sunset or something and people just saw it, they'd, they'd first of all not really realize what the verse is saying, but then if they read it on closer inspection, they'd be like, oh my goodness, the Bible tells me not to be righteous or wise. There's a problem sometimes <laughs> with our approach to scripture where we, we take a verse out of context and we don't understand what the author is trying to say. But here, I want to be really clear on what it is the author is saying. If you go and you read the book of Ecclesiastes, he's telling us about all of the things in life that have, have in some way, shape, or form failed him that have brought a realization of the finality of things, of the way in which uh, stuff just kind of disappears, it becomes vapor, that there are things that are fleeting in this world And he builds to a point where he says this, be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. And in the context of the chapter, we realize he's being a little facetious here. He's not telling us not to be righteous. He's not telling us not to be wise. He's saying is, you know, some of you think you're so smart. Some of you think you're so good. And you're being the death of yourself. See, you think, you think that your wisdom has reached its conclusion and there's nothing more you can be taught. You think that your righteousness has reached the pinnacle and there's no greater good you could be. And in so doing, you bring yourself to destruction. In fact, this is the author, again, being facetious, being sarcastic. Uh, you could have quotes around righteous or quotes around wise here. Uh, this, is, this is the author trying to tell us, look, If you think you're very wise or you think you're very righteous, it's time for some introspection. Because when you think you've arrived is the moment at which you could bring your own demise, your own downfall. You could destroy yourself. And he continues on with some of the same kind of language, explaining how wisdom and righteousness interact with an individual. It says, Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So he says, look, you know, wisdom is going to provide you some security. 
Wisdom is a good thing. If you're not feeling particularly secure, you know, more secure than a, a, a city with ten rulers, then maybe you're not as wise as you think you are. And if you think you're perfectly righteous, recognize this. There's not a, a man on the earth who does good all the time. Nobody is perfect. Of course, he's not living in a time where we could point back to Jesus and say, well, he was, and that's the beauty of our belief in Christ, is that even though we cannot be perfectly righteous, Jesus was perfectly righteous. He continues on in verse 21 and 22, and he says, do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. Now, I want to focus on kind of two things that are happening here. He says, look, not everything other people say is worth your time. Do not take to heart all the things that people say. It's possible for even the smartest person you know to lead you astray, to plant a seed of doubt to make you think about a situation in the wrong way. And maybe because you trust them, you continue to trust them for a long period of time. You follow them down a path that ends up being maybe destructive for you and for others. But he also said, look, think about how flippantly people can talk. You hear your servant over here and he curses you and maybe now you're dreading it because the servant's cursed me. Maybe I'm a horrible person. Maybe I deserve the curse. You know, Maybe what's true about me is that what the servant has said holds, holds fast. I am as bad as they think I am. He says, but think about your own words. Have you never cursed someone? And maybe in cursing them, you spoke falsely about them. Every time that the the author of Ecclesiastes approaches a situation where he asks us not to consider something else, he then tells us to reflect on our, our own inward life. Isn't it possible that you've spoken falsely before? Maybe you're a pretty wise person and you've said something out of ignorance. Maybe you're a wise person and you've spoken falsely about another human being. If you could be wrong, couldn't they be wrong? The author wants us to recognize that her source of information matters, but he also wants us to recognize that not everything we hear can be believed. Not about the world out there, not about the the facts of life, and not about our, our fellow human beings. If someone could be wrong about us, we could be wrong about them, and vice versa. He continues, he says, all this... I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. I don't know if you know who we traditionally say wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. We say it was Solomon, right? That uh, if nothing else, it is someone writing from the voice of Solomon and saying, look, this is the wisest wisdom I can possibly convey to you. And here he says, I have tested this by wisdom. All these things that I'm saying to you about being careful what voices you listen to, being careful about the way in which you think of yourself and your own wisdom and righteousness. I've tested it by the wisdom that God has given me. And let me be completely honest with you, even wisdom has been far from my grasp at times. This is the wisest man that ever lived. If he shouldn't overesteem his own wisdom, 
maybe we shouldn't overestimate our own wisdom. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? These words are intended to convey to us the understanding that there are things that have happened before, and there are things that will happen in the future, and there are things that are happening right now that are beyond our scope of understanding, of finding out, of searching, of researching, of coming to a full, satisfactory conclusion on. And I, I don't know about you, but uh, I do a lot of research on Facebook about a great many deals, a great many things that are going on in our world. And oftentimes, you know, I get really excited about the things I see on Facebook, And then I go and I do a little bit more research and I find contradictory information. And then I start asking myself, which of these two sources am I supposed to believe? And and I, I go and I find a third source and it says something completely different. And then I go and I find a fourth source and it kind of agrees with all three of them in some way, shape, or form. And now I'm really scratching my head and I'm saying, it's too far, too deep. How can I possibly find it out? The world is complex. The things that we can know about, we can't always know fully. And there are times where we find ourselves extremely confident in the assertions that we make, and we discover, I was wrong. And sometimes, it's that last part that is the most difficult for us to embrace. The ability to say, was wrong. And it's, it's about big things sometimes. Sometimes uh, I was wrong about the character of another person. There have been times where an individual uh, offers testimony on a situation thinking that they have understood fully what was happening. And after the fact, they come out and they write a book and they say, you know what? I was wrong in the testimony that I offered on the witness stand and I feel terrible about it. Uh, you know, this person was convicted based on evidence that I thought I was offering and it turns out that I was wrong about this. They recant their testimony completely. And there's a big benefit in that. It doesn't necessarily change the, the situation for the person that's been convicted, but sometimes a case can be reexamined when a person admits, I was wrong. Sometimes it's about the small things, too. Sometimes we have a disagreement with a person that lives under our own roof. I know that you're the one that left your shoes in front of the doorway here, and now the water's all over the floor because the snow melted off of... This did not happen in my house, I promise. Snow just happened. You left the shoes in the front door and all the snow melted off of your shoes and now there's a big puddle and I walked through it in my socks. Now that part, walking through a big puddle in my socks, happens almost every day because my kids empty the dishwasher and they always dump water on the floor when they're putting the dishes away. That makes me angry. Um, Sometimes we're wrong about who the cause of a situation is. We're wrong about the motives that we aspire, uh, 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 assign to a person who's done the wrong thing. Or wrong about whether or not a person cared enough to do something. Maybe they just didn't even know that a, a situation needed to be fixed. We need to begin from the perspective that, you know, our understanding is not complete. It's not perfect. 
And most of us can recognize, with some hindsight, when we've been wrong in the past, sometimes we have difficulty understanding how it's possible in the moment. We might be wrong, and we assign no benefit of doubt to our own judgment. And I think if we read the book of Ecclesiastes, most of chapter 7 here, what we end up finding out is that the author would encourage us, be skeptical of the things you think you know about yourself, about others, about the world around you. Because, you know, I've been everywhere. and I found what I thought I knew was true was not so true. But this isn't just in the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, This is actually a a worldly sort of thing. Um, Brian O'Driscoll, who was a rugby player, said one of the smartest things I think I've ever heard, knowledge is knowing a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is not putting it in a fruit salad. I'd say that's really true. Uh, The Bible talks about knowledge and wisdom, and sometimes it uses those two terms interchangeably. Sometimes when we read wisdom, what we're reading about is knowledge, understanding, the ability to process specific facts and ideas. And sometimes we translate it as wisdom, sometimes we translate it as understanding, sometimes we translate it as learning or knowledge. And sometimes the word wisdom is a bigger, broader concept that talks about an approach to life and where we derive our understanding of the world from. And I think that the book of Ecclesiastes oftentimes uses these two terms very interchangeably. The author of Ecclesiastes, when he says, you know, don't think of yourself as being too wise, might be telling us, don't think you know everything. And then later on when he says, I have searched this out by wisdom, he's saying, look, I've, I've asked God to guide me in this because that's the right approach and I've realized I can't know everything. Wisdom from above, the application of things, and knowledge of those things. And when those two things interact in the correct way, we don't end up making a fruit salad full of tomatoes. But I think a lot of us run about our lives gathering information and not processing it with wisdom. I think we can do that with a great number of things in our lives. I think we can do it with you know, broad uh, financial guidance. We can do it with uh, uh, our political standpoints. We can do it with uh, our, our approach to education. We can do it with all sorts of different things in our world. But I think oftentimes the way that this harms us the most is that we have knowledge in a relationship, but not the wisdom to apply that knowledge in a way that glorifies God and the relationships that we have with one another. And this is where I think we see the broader principle play out in Scripture. And so I want to walk us through a couple of ideas that we see here. Uh, Taking a look at the book of James, uh, which I know the ladies have been studying on Sunday morning, James is a book of wisdom. It's like wisdom literature in the New Testament. You could combine uh, the Sermon on the Mount and like a whole bunch of thoughts that we find within the wisdom literature, and you'd essentially get the book of James. And James, in chapter 3, verse 13 through 18, says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, 
unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And I want you to think about down here at the bottom of the the pericope, this uh, section of Scripture, but the wisdom from above, and then it uses phrases that are not necessarily about gathering information, but they are about relationship and character. It's pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. See, sometimes we think having all the information makes us wise, but the truth is that the author is saying, here, look, you can have wisdom and understanding. But if you only operate from your understanding, well, that's a worldly kind of work. Because meekness derives from wisdom. Meekness is a, a humility about our own stature, our own status. It's a recognition of who we, who we are in relationship to other people. Now, you may have a lot of facts. You may have a lot of information. You may have a lot of things that you've collected in your head to assimilate together and and build ideas for this world. But if it's not creating peace, if it's not fostering healthy relationship, all of that intelligence, all of those facts, all that understanding does you no good. Wisdom fosters relationship, sometimes in spite of the things you think you know. Wisdom pursues peace. Wisdom is gentle. In fact, take this passage here and compare wisdom to what Paul has to say about love. We spent an entire summer looking at what it is that Paul has to say about love, and I I would dare say that there are some characteristics in here ascribed to wisdom that would be ascribed to love. Is it possible that the wisest thing we can do, even with all the facts on the table, even with an understanding that can put another person in their place and tell them how they are completely wrong on so many fronts, that the wisest thing we can do is to sweep all the facts off the table and act peaceably with gentleness and meekness? Is that what we're called to as Christians when we're told to to live with wisdom? James suggests that to do otherwise would be not only earthly, but maybe even demonic. I don't want to be demonic. I don't know about you. (laughs) I don't want to test James on this hypothesis. I think I'd rather just take his advice. I think about the story of Job. And Job's life is definitely a life that if we were to lay it out on the table and examine the facts, we might think this is a man who has every right to be angry. We might think that this is a man who has every right to shake his fist at the sky and say, why in the world is this happening to me? Who do you think you are? 
And we're told in the early chapters that Job doesn't sin with his mouth against God. And for most of the book, we see these these men that argue around in circles about whether or not God is righteous, whether or not Job is righteous, whether or not Job deserves what it is that he's getting. And over and over again, they have these conversations that really they're complex theological arguments. They're great philosophy. If you, if you have the opportunity to really dig into Job, you see that like most of the arguments that we have about the nature of God and suffering and existence that happen today, they haven't gotten any better. They, they've always been this complicated and difficult. And there's a moment where Job is in despair and having heard all these arguments, he, he, he begins to turn his eyes to the sky and genuinely ask, God, why is this happening to me? And a storm comes rolling in, and in the storm there is the voice of God, and God tells Job, look, you don't understand everything. You can't understand everything. You don't have the perspective to know what's really going on. Can you just trust that I am God? And you know that I am who I say I am. And after the first speech, Job covers his mouth and he's like, I, I don't know what I was thinking. I spoke without knowledge. And God comes back in and he's like, darn right you did. Don't you understand who I am? Don't you know who I am? Don't you think I see your suffering? Don't you think I can do something about it? If that's what's absolutely best. And after God has spoken again, Job says, I know, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? He quotes God. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. He quotes God again, here, and I will speak. I I will question you, and you make it known to me. And Job's response, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. Now my eye sees you, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. The conclusion of the book of Job is that Job then receives more than he had lost. And Ben and I have talked about this. He loses children, so we're not entirely sure that this is like a yay happy moment. But God does prosper Job even after this. But Job had to face God and say the words, I was wrong. I didn't know everything. I thought I did. Now I see you, and I, I despise myself, he says. In comparison to you, my esteem is down here. As we examine the scriptures, as we look at this message that arises over and over again about really having a proper perspective on our own understanding, about applying wisdom correctly, about processing new facts, and then maybe taking up a new position as a result of it, the thing that I, I come back to is that it must be, must be imperative on us that we recognize what I thought I knew, I didn't know. I think there are only two things that we can derive from this. What I thought I knew, I didn't know. 
If we can say that in our own minds, if we can say it out loud in our own voices, I think that gives us a tremendous amount of freedom. Sean mentioned this morning, you know, when we come to Christ, when we, we recognize his death, his burial, his resurrection, his eternal enthronement, when we process the reality of our salvation in light of those things, being able to say, I was wrong, should be one of the most natural reactions to life, you know? I was wrong. And the good news is, Jesus forgave me. I was wrong yesterday. And the good news is, I didn't, I didn't have to have all the information in order to be justified by Christ. I was wrong. What I thought I knew, I did not know. But the second part of this, I think, is the one that maybe, if you're considering New Year's resolutions, if you're considering a way of living that's not just, I'm going to check this box, but you're thinking of a holistic change to your life, is to approach this thought. My self-inflation allowed me to act in a way inconsistent with the gospel. My high view of myself prevented me from loving, loving other people well. My overinflated estimation of my intelligence prevented me from being humble and meek and gentle and peaceable. I want to challenge everyone this morning, myself included, to embrace the idea of saying, I was wrong. There's a second phrase we're going to talk about next week, and I'm going to give you a spoiler here. The the phrase is, I'm sorry. And I think these two go hand in hand with one another. I don't think we can oftentimes honestly say, I'm sorry, in a way that is satisfactory for another person, or perhaps even satisfactory for God, Unless we can say, I was wrong. And if we really want to have healthy relationships with our spouses, with our children, with our coworkers, with our brothers and sisters in Christ, these are phrases I think we need to embrace. And I want to leave you with some good news this morning that may not sound like good news. Philippians 2, verse 12 through 13. Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in the presence, or in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, you read these passages, and sometimes people take that first part there, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, and we think, oh, you know, we need to be perfectly right at all times so that then we don't, you know, lose our salvation That's not what Paul is saying here. Paul is telling us this, look, you should be in awe of the fact that you have been saved in light of the fact that you don't have it all together. You should marvel at this. How in the world could God save you having been wrong before? Notice it says God works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. I may be wrong, but God never is. And if I yield to the God who has saved me, 
if I humble myself and recognize I do not deserve the salvation I have received and how glorious it is that I've received it. Admitting I was wrong is, is a small thing. Admitting I was wrong to reconcile relationships, to maybe give up my own way, is a very small thing indeed. Let's pray, and then we'll continue in our worship. Our Father in heaven, you are always right. You are wiser and more knowledgeable than anyone in this room. And we will be wrong maybe a dozen times today. We will think wrongly about a particular situation. We will uh, be wrong in our estimation of other people. We will be uh, faulty or short in our understanding even of you. And the marvelous, fearful, wonderful, trembling, inducing reality is that in light of all of that, you still chose to save us. And that as we abandon the thinking that we are so wise and so righteous, we will find ourselves blessed by your wisdom, by your good works, by the guidance that you give to us, so that we might be humble, meek, gentle, peacemakers. Let us be that kind of people in the year ahead and for all the days of our lives. Father, we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus, who showed us what humbleness, humility looks like, who showed us what it meant to be wise in a world that was full of people who thought that they were very wise. To show us what it meant to love in a world that was often very unloving. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing. I care not today what the morrow may bring, if shadow or sunshine or rain. The Lord I know ruleth o'er everything, and all of my worry is vain. Living by faith in Jesus above, trusting confide. Leading in his great love from all harm safe in his sheltering arm I'm living by faith and feel no alarm Our Lord will return to this earth some sweet day Our troubles will then all be o'er. The Master so gently will lead us away beyond that blessed heavenly shore. Living by faith in Jesus above, trusting, confiding in His great love. From all harm safe in his sheltering arm, I'm living by faith and feel no alarm.
You can be seated. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only Son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom, but this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Amen. How great the chasm that lay between us. How high the mountain I could not climb. In desperation I turned to heaven and spoke your name into the night. Then through the darkness, your loving kindness tore through the shadows of my soul. The work is finished, 
The end is written, Jesus Christ, my living hope. Who could imagine so great a mercy? What heart could fathom such boundless grace? The God of ages stepped down from glory to wear my sin and bear my shame. The cross has spoken, I am forgiven. The King of kings calls me his own. Beautiful Savior, I'm yours forever. Jesus Christ, my living hope. Hallelujah, praise the one who set me free. Hallelujah, death has lost its shape on me. You have broken every chain. There's salvation in your name, Jesus Christ. My living hope, hallelujah, praise the one who set me free, hallelujah, death has lost its grip on me, you have broken every chain, there's salvation in your name, Jesus Christ, my living hope. Then came the morning that sealed the promise. Your buried body began to breathe. Out of the silence, the roaring lion declared the grave has no claim on me. Jesus, yours is the victory. Hallelujah. Praise the one who set me free. Hallelujah. Death has lost its grip on me. You have broken every chain. There's salvation in your name, Jesus Christ, my living hope. Hallelujah, praise the one who set me free. Hallelujah, death has lost its grip on me. You have broken every chain. There's salvation in your name, Jesus Christ, my living hope. Jesus Christ, my living hope. Amen. I'd like us to share... uh real gem of a passage. Uh, if you have your Bibles and would like to, turn to 1 John 1, 5. Uh, I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation. This is really a powerful passage. The uh, letter, 1 John, 
uh, chapter 1, verse 5. wonder what Jesus said was his message. 1 John 1, 5. This is the message he has given us to announce to you. God is light, and there is no darkness in him. This is the message he has given us to announce to you. God is light, and there is no darkness in him. And then if you jump down to verse 7. But if we are living in the light of God's presence, just as Christ is, then we have fellowship with each other. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from every sin. If we say we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and refusing to accept the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from every wrong. If we claim we have not sinned, we're calling God a liar and showing his word has no place in our hearts. This is the message that we heard. John says, this is what he said to say to you. Let's go to God in prayer. Lord God, we confess we are wrong. I was wrong. We are wrong. In our thoughts, in our speech, in our actions, we are wrong. We are sorry, but thank you that we can still be in your presence and walk in your light. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the bread and the blood of Jesus, the body and the blood of Jesus that washes us white as snow. It's in Jesus' name that we offer this confession and also this praise for what Jesus did for us. In Jesus' name, amen. This is the message he has given to us to announce to you. I'd like to start back up before that verse. I'm going to start with verse 1. It kind of leads into that statement. What a gem of a passage. What is Jesus? Who is Jesus? What is his message? The one who existed from the beginning is the one we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. He is Jesus Christ. 
the word of life. This one who is life from God was shown to us, and we have seen him. And now we testify and announce to you that he is the one who is eternal life. He was with the Father, and then he was shown to us. We're, we are telling you about what we ourselves have actually seen and heard, so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things out so that our joy will be complete. Let's go to God in prayer. Lord God, thank you for the fruit of the vine. Thank you for Jesus' sacrifice. Thank you that Jesus Christ is the word of life and that he showed himself to people who could tell us about him. And we can see him too. We can see him as his spirit lives in other people. We are glad that we can see him, that we can hear him, and that we can have fellowship with other disciples, with other followers, and we can have fellowship with the Father, and we can have fellowship with Jesus Christ. Even when we are wrong, that does make our joy complete. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. After partaking of the blood and after partaking of the bread, we do want to remind you that uh, we do need to serve Jesus and serve our brothers and serve our community. And one way that you can do that is with contribution. And uh, the slide behind us reminds us you can drop it off in the box in the wall on your way out. You can do it through bill pay uh, or you can give online at the link. But we are Jesus' disciples, and his purpose is our purpose. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you again for Jesus. This is his time. This is his church. This is his place. His place is in our hearts. Help us to live like that. In Jesus' name, amen. sing our last song together. <clears throat> Father God, just for today, help me walk your narrow way. Help me stand when I might fall. Give me the strength to hear your call. May my steps be worship. May my thoughts 
Be praised, may my words bring honor to your name. Oh, may my steps be worship, may my thoughts be praised, may my words bring honor to your name. Amen. Uh, before Sean gets up here, I just want to share um, a personal announcement. Um, Rebecca is pregnant. Yeah. Um, for those of you who have known us for a while, you'll know that this has been uh, a long journey for us. It's been a difficult one at times, and uh, we're just very thankful for the support, the prayers, and uh, just we look forward to uh, that being continued, your support of us as we enter into this new journey. Uh, it's been difficult sometimes because of just the loss that we've faced in the past, um, and it's been um, a good way to learn about what faith looks like. And so we just ask that you continue to walk with us in that. Um, we are having a girl, by the way, which we're excited about. And uh, we just want to say uh, thank you so much. And we're happy to share that news with you. <laughs> good stuff. Uh, David, do I have an announcement? There we go. Youth ministry meeting, uh, Sunday the 9th, directly after um, our classes. Just a quick meeting with the youth ministry meeting in room 6. So right over there next Sunday. Uh, a couple other announcements, a couple milestones. Not only is there that pregnancy um, that the Williams have, but uh, Nathan, 89 today. That's a fantastic milestone. Want to celebrate that. John Germain is semi-retired. He's going to be doing a few days of work. He's going to be catching up on Joyce's uh, honeydew list. Okay. Then after that, then he's going to take care of our projects as well. So I want to make sure that you get, uh, get uh, John starting on your projects. I'm on the list. So uh, we, we celebrate your, your retirement in that. Um, a challenging note, the rotors uh, this morning were trying to, I guess, get here, and they're stuck on, in ice on Highway 219, and a uh, tow truck won't come help them. And so if you have any kind of way to help the rotors out this morning, uh, with a vehicle of some kind that can pull them out. Uh, I don't have any other details other than they're stuck in ice and a tow truck won't help them. And so um, I think we have cell phone numbers and stuff so we can get a hold of them. Um, Danielle uh, Crump's got, is going like this, so if we need to get a hold of them or if you can help, uh, maybe Daniel can direct you to the rotors, but uh, we need to be able to help if we can. This morning, we've been challenged to grow as disciples of Jesus in humility, to walk as he walked, and uh, be able to say that we're wrong. And so I pray and encourage all of us to be more and more like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for challenging words this morning to help us grow. Uh, we want to be more like Christ and to be spirit-led, not led by the flesh or by the ways of this world. We're called to be different, Father. We're called to be um, 
the kind of people that will recognize that uh, you are the Lord of our lives. And so I pray, Father, that as we leave here today, that we'd seek to grow more and more in the wisdom of Christ and not of the ways of the world or our flesh. Thank you for the hope we have in Jesus, and in him we pray. Amen. Our fellowship time now, uh, for the next few minutes, we're a little bit behind schedule.